Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 363. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a show, man. This one is cram solid with goodness. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up, which is just outstanding, we have an interview by Catherine Inskip. Now Catherine, as you know, did the little science space little fact article last month. Well, didn't I drop Catherine a little email? Last week and says, oh, it'd be lovely to get something on the, the Rosetta and, you know, the, the Philae landing. And what? And Catherine has got an interview with Dr. Mark Bentley. And I'm going to say no more than that, but just enjoy that. Then we have the main fiction, which is Megan Lindholm, Old Paint. And anyone out there who knows Megan Lindholm, so she writes under the pseudonym Robin Hobb in a fantasy world. Then we have, looking back at a genre history, Amy H. Sturgis. Then right at the end, we have our very own Diane Severson. Diane is doing Showcasing the Dwarf Stars Award. So we've got that as well. That is all coming up in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now, before, before any of all that, let me just say a big thank you to Diane and Clive Catton. Now, as you know, Kickstarter kind of finished and we got there through the, through the kind of, past the, the mark and, and were funded. So that is just fantastic. Diane and Clive run Octagon Technology Limited and they're going to sponsor Starship Sova. Coming in the new year, they're going to sponsor Starship Sova for a full year. And I'm, I'm actually really pleased, you know what I mean, especially Clive, Clive's actually a listener to the show, and has been a listener that needs a bloody medal, has been, you know, from from the beginning, you know, right at the beginning there, so it's lovely that, you know, someone who kind of just gets science fiction is sponsoring the show, you know, and I'm more than happy to kind of talk about Octagon technology, do you know what I mean, I'll give you a little heads up about it, just for, for now. Based in Lincolnshire, supplying technology without tears, <laughs> Tell you what, Clive, you're going to get hit with me. Clive, listen, help us with this. Specialising in IT support for small businesses, helping you when computers and networks stop working and providing secure cloud-based backups and exchange email. So that's just a little kind of brief into Octagon technology, but like I say, a big thank you to Clive and Diane for supporting the Kickstarter and, you know, basically helping run Starship Sova for another year as well. That's just fantastic. Looking forward to working with you, Clive and Diane. So first up, we have this fantastic interview. Like I say, Catherine Inskip, who, you know, is an astronomer. 
And a fantastic narrator as well, been on the show a couple of times. I dropped Catherine a little email, just, you know, just, Catherine, could you do something with this? You know, it's just been fantastic watching all the kind of coverage of the Rosetta, you know, and the Philly landing. And when it actually happened, you know, when my son and myself were watching on telly, at the precise moment, there was tears in my eyes when that thing hit the ground, you know, and landed. Oh! The jubilation from the kind of, the, the, you know, the Hope Centre. Just fantastic. And I was itching to get Catherine, you know, just get Catherine's insight into it. Do you know what I mean? What was going on? But then, you know, she said, oh, yeah, I'll do that, Tony. But then what I got back was this interview, which is just fantastic. Catherine, thank you so much. OK, so I promised Tony that I would do something on the Feli landing. And I've actually got a bit of a surprise for him today because... My husband and I went to university with one of the people involved in the Rosetta mission, and that is Dr. Mark Bentley, who is the principal investigator for the MIDAS instrument on the Rosetta orbiter itself. So he has very kindly taken some time out of his incredibly busy schedule to have a quick chat with me, and we're going to have a talk about the the mission. So here he is. Mark, would you like to say hello? Hello, thanks for having me on. Okay, so you must be really shattered after the last week anyway. Well, I mean, yeah, so, so for me it was a little bit strange because, I mean, my instrument is on the orbit and not the lander. Yeah. And so it's for weird. me it was uh, uh, a mix last week, especially on the day of the landing, of, of kind of, on the one hand, it would have been really nice to be part of this sort of really dynamic happening now event. Um, but as it was, I was kind of one step removed, and so it was nice to be able to observe and uh, yeah. do some tweeting and relaxing and uh, playing the spectator role. So can you give us a quick summary of, um, just to sort of encapsulate the Rosetta mission, so its, its purpose and why it is so particularly special? Sure. Well, so Rosetta was designed, uh, well, it was formulated way back when, after the European Giotto mission, in fact. And uh, at that point, we really didn't know much about comets. I mean, we, we knew the basics from ground observations, but we didn't really have an idea of what they were going to look like. And uh, this icy snowball was the main, uh, the main candidate for what we thought they were. Um, and so we wanted to go and see in more detail. I mean, there was always this suggestion that comets were really uh, uh, capsules, time capsules that sort of preserved the conditions in the early solar system and that maybe we could use them to look back in time to see what the original building blocks of the solar system were like and maybe how water was brought to the Earth and maybe something about the origins of life. So it's really looking back to, to material that's, that's primitive and as unchanged as possible. And, of course, Halley was the first mission to do this um, and was amazing. But, of course, as everything, it, answered, it threw up more questions than answers. Yeah, and so, you can't get more fundamental than these particular questions. I mean, no, for us as a species, these are really important things that we need to figure out. Yeah, they're big picture questions, which, which really I think people can kind of get behind, uh, unlike some more esoteric adding a decimal place to some yes. constant or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But they don't, they're not ones that you can answer quickly. I mean, Rosetta's been, it was, when did the planning start off? What year? Uh, well, so I'm uh, looking at, for the instrument proposals, at least, I think the proposal deadline was 94 already. So presumably the industrial studies for that were even earlier. I'm not sure on the exact dates for that. 
Yeah, so you'd only just, yeah, you'd only just gone to, to university at that point because I know I went in 95 and you were the year above me at Leicester. So, exactly. I mean, Rosetta has been science in the making for, for longer than we've been scientists. So, yeah, it's really crazy to think about it. And I mean, it's crazy to think that it was designed with only the knowledge that we had then about comets. I mean, in the meantime, we've seen half a dozen or so uh, comets or sample comets close up with other missions. But of course, you can't feed that knowledge back into a 20-year mission. I mean, the instruments, the technology, everything was designed more or less 20 years ago. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's really difficult to now uh, look back and think, well, what would you have done differently? But of course, in the case of Rosetta, I, no one could have predicted that we would go to this crazy-looking comet that just... Oh, I know. So no matter I how much planning you put in there... It was just, yeah magical surprise just seeing what it looked like and I mean you must have been so relieved that Rosetta woke up safely once I mean it spent all that time traveling and I mean how confident were you that it would all work out okay? Yeah I mean I think the the orbiter hibernation was clearly uh, a big risk for everyone I mean the whole thing was wrapped up in that spacecraft waking up but I, I think for the most part everyone was reasonably confident that that yeah. would be okay. I mean, yeah. of course, you always worry when you have had no contact for, I think, 957 days. But the spacecraft was, was, was known at that point. Its behavior was fairly understood. It had already been in space for some years. So uh, I think that part was, was, yeah, there could have been problems, of course. And then the reboot of the onboard computer that caused a half hour, whatever it was, delay uh, uh, in, the, in the receiving the signal, that certainly had everyone's nerves uh, and tension. Yeah, so that was that was tricky. But it's been obviously such a well planned mission, and I mean, one one thought that occurred to me. So, watching how Philae got sent down, and they know the thrusters aren't working, and then you worry about whether it's landed, has it held on? Oh no, it's bounced. Where's it going to end up? And it ends up in that most unfortunate location. And then you have everybody scrambling, not just to figure out where it is and how secure it is, but to actually do the science you sent it out for. And so all of that juggling and managing the, I mean, you only had limited battery power and all of the different instruments on board wanted to use it. And clearly there is a lot of science happening. I mean, was this type of contingency planning, was it something that existed or is the, the whole Rosetta mission just really, really good at making things work when life gets difficult? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, speaking from the orbiter perspective, the planning process is quite long. I mean, so we, we're planning on, on, on long timescales, you know, like blocks of months, several months ahead. And then we have a medium term planning process that, that's on a one month level and then a short term planning process on a one week level. Um, and in that case, it's you, you iron out most of the bugs as you go yeah. along. But for the lander, of course, it was different because they knew they only had this sort of near enough 60 hours battery life at the beginning. And so they spent months indeed building a sequence that was optimized for the power that they had available to make sure that everyone got a slot in this so-called first science sequence. So until the batteries ran out for the first time, yeah. the, with the hope and expectation that one could then move down the line. But of course, yeah, what happened was uh, a complete break in the whole process. And so it had a lot of people sitting in the, in Cologne and really, yeah, having to work around the clock to design new sequences and uh, everyone had to pull together and accept that there would be compromises made. 
Um, but I think everyone was happy at the end that, that at least every instrument got a chance, uh, if not to do their complete science sequence, to have a you know, to get a bite of the pie. So. Yeah, it does seem like they've done an incredibly good job at, at really getting something for everyone there. And yeah. Fingers crossed. Fingers yeah, crossed exactly. it will wake up again. Sometime in the future there'll be enough sunlight to recharge those batteries. And yeah, that's, that's going to be tough. It's, uh, yeah. yeah, let's hope. Fingers crossed. Um, so can you tell, tell us more about Midas, the instrument that you're sure. the principal investigator for? Sure. So Midas is um, it's an atomic force microscope, which is already uh, an odd instrument to be flying to space. Um, so there are only two that have been built, both around the same time. One went to Mars, which, of course, is a nice, easy place to get to. And so they operated much before us. And, and then the other one is Midas. So we're interested in the, the smallest dust particles that you can get at the comet. So really the, the building blocks, the smallest components that we can find that we think then went into making up comets and making up the solar system itself um, in the early days. So when yeah. you have these icy, dusty grains floating around, colliding and sticking together, um, we want to try and collect those grains and understand uh, yeah, how this process worked. What shape are they? Are they really sort of fluffy things or are they compact single grains? Um, so that's the kind of questions we want to answer. Um, and to do that, it's really a two-stage process. So first we have the sticky targets, mm -hmm. uh, which are pretty small there. Is it one by two or something? Millimeters so a bit large. like flypaper. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, high-tech flypaper. And we, we stick these out to the comets, and we have a funnel on the front that pokes through the spacecraft. And uh, yeah, so we open our shutter, and we wait. Mm -hmm. and, uh, of course, we don't really know what's going on, so we have to have a model in the background that says, yeah, if you expose for a week, you would expect so many particles of this size and so many of this size. Um, and then we close the shutter, and uh, we take the sample back inside, and then we use this special microscope to try and figure out what's going on. Now, because these particles are so small, uh, they're smaller than you could see with an optical microscope, so that's why we have the, the ASM, the Atomic Force Microscope. That is, is uh, really extremely tiny. I mean, it's small. Yeah, I mean, we're interested in, in sort of one micron ish and below grains. So, I mean, that's sort of yeah, obviously a millionth of a meter, and and uh, yeah, you start looking at comparable sizes of things. I think when I first started working with this, I had to go to Wikipedia and sort of ask the question, well, what kind of stuff is around this size? And then you get the answer, well, red blood cells, for example, are around this size. So it's uh, wow, it's, it's small stuff. Um, which is wonderful, but it also brings some challenges that we're, we're now mm -hmm. discovering. Um, so yeah, that the microscope itself doesn't work with light. It works with these, these really sharp tips. So what we have is, is basically very sharp needles mm -hmm. mounted at the end of cantilevers. So sort of bouncy springboards. Yeah. And we, we use this to gently tap the sample and we scan across it. And then in this way, we can kind of map out the surface. So if you tap onto a lump of dust, then you get a, a different uh, response from the instrument. Sure. So, so first we have to find the dust. So we're basically tapping around our, our, our more or less flat uh, collection surface, looking for a dust particle. Uh, when we found it, then we zoom in and we repeat this sort of tapping process, but on a really high resolution. So we're mm -hmm. mapping the surface of the grain, and looking at its shape and its texture, and uh, yeah, how rough it is, how smooth it is, yeah, and, uh, those kind of questions. Yeah, so it's, it's really exciting stuff, though. I mean, and, and so complex to be doing that it's at such a distance from Earth. Sure. 
Well done, you. I mean, that's amazing. Now, I've seen... Well, let's, wait, let's wait till we get some dust first. So at the moment, we're in the stage where we can't, we've exposed our surface and we're tapping around looking for these dust particles, but because it's early days and the comet is still relatively inactive, mm-hmm. and so Zeta arrived before we got active in order to, you know, to see the whole beginning of activity developing, and yes. also so fly could land before it got too crazy down there on the surface. Yeah. But so at the moment, it's tricky. We, we think we must have some dust collected, but we have to find it, and that's just a, a slow, time-consuming process. I've seen that, um, so Midas has its own Twitter feed, and obviously yes. Philo does as well, and the whole of the Rosetta telescope. Um, sorry, spacecraft. I'm still, I'm such an astronomer. I'm still into telescope. Oh, mate. Everything so, is a telescope, but. And, and, yeah, I mean, it's been really interesting in that sense, because not just the official ESA account, so as you say, one for Rosetta and one for Philae, mm. uh, but then some of the instruments started. So uh, I think uh, myself and the Midas and, and who was second? I forget, but a few of the orbiter instruments started. And, and now a load of the, pretty much all of the, the Philae instruments I've got on Twitter, and I'm just I'm looking at the feed. Excuse yeah. me, my eyes, my eyes skid across. I'm looking at the right. feed in the background. And um, one of the instruments, Opus, which mm-hmm. is another fantastic bit of kit, um, is just tweeting a whole bunch of results, telling us everything they tried last night on the comet, what worked and what didn't work. Yeah, and it's uh, yeah, it's amazing to see this kind of live feedback from something that landed just a couple of days ago. I know. I mean, we've been following it along on Twitter, just. Um on the one hand, just to sort of hear the results as they're coming in and check on the status of Feli. But it's it's lovely just seeing how these personalities develop. And, sure. I mean, it's probably probably helped. Um, I don't know whether you saw the XKCD comic last week, which was yes. such a nice thing for him to have done. It was it was beautifully done. And if, if any listeners haven't seen it, they should go and Google it and watch the full sequence of the, the feli landing as interpreted by XKCD. Cause it's, it's a, it's a work of art. That is. So Rosetta is obviously going to be tracking the comet for several more months now. Um, yes. so you've, you've, you're expecting to continue the, the Rosetta side of the mission, um, until sort of March beyond that. Oh, well. Much longer. I mean, Much longer. So the, the primary mission for Rosetta, in fact, is only really just starting. I mean, the, um, uh, the, everything that's come up until now, all the results that we got with the orbiter, this was kind of a, a bonus. Because mm-hmm. we always thought that up until the lander delivery, everything will be driven by getting this lander safely down. Mm-hmm. But actually, the guys at ESA uh, were, were flexible enough to even let us do quite a lot of science in these early phases. But really, it's now, after the lander's gone, that the orbiter can really start focusing on just doing its science. Mm-hmm. And our prime mission runs basically from now until the end of December and next year. So mm-hmm. oh, over so, a year. Okay, that's long. And, and we hope that we'll get an extended mission. I mean, of course, it's a financial question and we have to go and ask the, uh, the, the ministers effectively if, if this is possible. But, but because it's a, a constrained mission, I mean, we can't be at the, space, at the, at the comment for much longer. Because we've got a finite amount of fuel. Yes. Um, so we're thinking, yeah, maybe half a year. So taking mm-hmm. us to summer 2016 um, would be great. Also because we follow the comet through its perihelion passage, so the closest point to the sun. Yeah. And at the moment, our mission would end a little bit beyond that. Mm-hmm. But from the ground-based observations, we've seen that there's quite an asymmetry in the in the approach phase and the departure phase from the sun. So yeah. we see a lot more activity on the outbound phase because there's a seasonal shift, so a part of the comet that's not previously illuminated 
then catches the sun and it mm-hmm. heats up and drives a lot more activity. So And that heating is going to increase the closer and closer it gets. So Exactly, yeah. So so we have some good reasons why we should extend this mission into two thousand sixteen, but of course that remains to be seen. Yeah, so I mean poor feline. I mean whatever condition it's in right now, it is gonna get fried at some point. Yeah, well yeah, that's right. It's 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 interesting. The the expected reason for the lambda to die, assuming that it that everything went well was uh, the, the lovely, uh, lovely term thermal death scenario. Oh, so the, oh poor so, thing. I know, it's, it's really quite sad, I and mean, especially with these Twitter accounts, the first person, you can feel for that Yeah, person. I know. So, yeah, uh, and, and so what we thought would happen was that uh, this was, of course, designed to land far from the sun. Mm-hmm. So everything is well insulated and heated and so on. And the expected problem was that the battery compartment would get too warm a few months later than the landing mm-hmm. as we moved closer to the sun and that this could probably cause the end of the mission to Philae. But of course, yeah, who knows now? I mean, it depends on the exact illumination conditions and the temperature and uh, how much light hits the solar panels. So yeah, yeah it's uh, it's anybody's guess at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's in such a sheltered spot at the moment, then if it does ever recharge, it might last a little longer. But Well, yeah, that's, that's the thing. I mean, there's, yeah... It, it first has to get enough power, and then the first thing it does when it has power is to heat up some of the internals so mm-hmm. that they can reach a stable temperature. Um, and so, well, that that already takes some power, and the computers on board take a minimum amount of boot up. And so, it, it requires some amount of warmth mm-hmm. and continuous solar light, solar, illumin- solar illumination, before it can even think about making contact. So yeah, because it is seriously freezing out there. Yeah. It is very cold. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm going to look forward to sort of hearing more of the results as they come out. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, the last thing I wanted to ask is just what it was like emotionally over the last last few days, the last few months, just experiencing the whole the whole thing, even though you weren't part of the Lander team, just sort of sharing the atmosphere. Yeah, it was it was amazing. I have to say, I mean, uh, yeah, for me, it's been. Uh, I suppose the, the the wake up from hibernation was my sort of panic moment, although mm-hmm. I fully expected it to be okay you know when it didn't quite wake up at the time there was some uh, some moments of panic there but uh, but yeah the experience of, of being in Darmstadt at the, at the European Space Operations Center um, for for the wake up was was yeah was something I will certainly treasure forever I mean everyone really pulled together there I mean mm-hmm. the journalists the the scientists the operations team everyone who was there was really just willing this thing to work and uh, and then of course yeah we heard the good news and then it wasn't so good then we thought it's bounced off the surface, so there was really a roller coaster ride of emotions. But everyone was really getting behind the team and, uh, and wishing everyone luck. So yeah, and it's such a good result that it's you've, you're getting some science out of it, and yes, you're yes, all to be congratulated. No, and okay, so I have an imaginary one billion euros here, which you can spend Three. on um, a space mission of your choice. What are you going to spend it on? <laughs> That's a question. Wow, now you put me on the spot. I, uh, yeah. Question. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, at the moment, we've uh, we've been so lucky in Europe to have some amazing space missions in the last decade or so. I mean, more than, for planetary science in particular, more than we've had at any other time with Venus Express, Mars Express, with Zeta, um, yeah, with, with Becky Colombo coming online, with Smart One going to the moon. Yeah, I guess... Scientifically, Mars sample return is still yeah. somewhere near the top of the list. I mean, uh, you know, these robotic missions are fantastic, but still we know that bringing something back to the lab 
even if it's a small sample, you can look at that for years or decades even with ever-increasing instrumentation. And uh, so, yeah, I also love the idea of going to Europa and, you know, burying into the oceans oh, there. Oh, yeah, that would be a good one. Elton's float and uh, Venus balloons would be fantastic, of course, as proposals <laughs> for this floating around. So there are so many cool things. And I think for me, I, I find it hard to choose because sort of part of me wants to go with the top science question on my list, the sort of the heart part of me. Mm-hmm. But then part of me thinks, yeah, but what's Wouldn't the it be cool? coolest thing? Yes. <laughs> Can we have a glider flying around Mars? Or we have these balloons on Venus? I mean, because the, the technical aspects are also just so inspiring in their own right. I ca- yeah, I mean, the thought of getting anything to survive on Venus for any length of time, that would be a big challenge. Of course, yeah. But that's yeah. that's part of why we do it. I mean, yes, we do it for science, but also it's just the sheer challenge of it. It's, it's, it's like climbing Everest in space, but... Exactly. <laughs> it's these, yeah, these momentous achievements that, why not? Why not just go away and do it? I mean, it's, it's just phenomenal that we can do these things. Okay. So I'm going to say thank you so much to Mark for, for talking to me today. Thank you. There you go. What an exclusive. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. And, you know, thank you, Dr. Mark Bentley. How cool is that? Do you know what I mean? Fantastic. So next up is the main fiction, and it is all painted by Megan Lindholm. And like I say, Megan Lindholm is Robin Hobb. Megan Lindholm was born in Oakland, California in 1952 and spent the first 10 years of her life in California. She grew up in a house full of books, rich with lovely illustrated fairy tale volumes, the works of Kipling, Robbie Louis, Steve, Robbie Louis, Robert Louis Stevenson, Dumas and Shakespeare. In 1970, she married and moved with her husband, Fred, to Kodiak, Alaska. They live in a very small village called Chinica, near a missile tracking site. In 1982, she sold her first fantasy novel, Harpley's Flight. Her other works include The Reindeer People, Wolf's Brother, Alien Earth, Wizard of Pigeons, and a collaboration with Steve Burst, The Gypsy. In 1995, her career as a novelist ended as she began to write epic fantasy under the pseudonym Robin Hobb, which she continues to this day. Her best-known work is the Farseer Trilogy, and her most recent work as Robin Hobb is The Fool's Assassin, 2014. As Megan Lindholm, her short work such as A Touch of Lavender was a finalist for both the Hugo and Nebula Award. Silver Lady and the 40-ish Man was also a Nebula finalist. Over the years, she has continued to write short stories as Megan Lindholm. Other short works recently published include Neighbours in the anthology Dangerous Women, edited by George R.R. Martin and Gardner Dozwas. And this anthology recently won the World Fantasy Award for Best Anthology. The story is narrated by Lulu Sal. Lulu Sal is a wife mother. Yes, the mother of Jeremy, our assistant editor. And a school teacher specialising in English and history living in Sydney, Australia. She is the author of children's and young adult books. Occasionally a writer of fantasy short stories. Her work has been published at Aurora Wolf magazine and she is currently fast at work writing more short stories for publication. In her university years, she competed in public speaking and debating competitions, distinguishing herself admirably. (laughs) I wish I could. (laughs) 
as well as dabbling in radio drama. She has narrated podcasts for Antivitine SF and hopes to do many more podcasts for Stay for Starship Silver in the future. That will be fantastic, Lulu. I'll put a little link on to Lulu's site as well. So, the Starship Silver is very proud to present All Paint by Megan Lindholm. I was only nine when it happened, so I may not have the details absolutely right. But I know the heart of my story, and the heart is always what matters in a tale like mine. My family didn't have much when I was growing up. A lot of lean years happened in that first half of the century. I don't say I had it as tough as my mum did, but the 2030s weren't a piece of cake for anyone. My brother, my mum and I lived in subsidised housing on the part of Tea Town they called New Tacoma. It sure wasn't new when I was a kid. Tacoma's always been a tough town, and my mum said her grandpa kept her on a short leash when she survived it, and so her kids would too. Everyone knew we had the strictest mum in our apartments, and pitied us for it. We weren't like a lot of folks in the subsidised housing. Mum was ashamed to be there. It was the only thing she took from the government, and I think if she had been alone, she would have lived on the streets. We got on by what she made working at an old folks' home, so we budgeted hard. She cooked our meals from scratch, and we carried our lunches to school in the same battered lunch boxes and stained backpacks year after year. She mended our clothes, and we shopped at the Goodwill. Our cell phones were clunky, and we all shared one computer, and we didn't have a car. Then my great-grandpa died. Mum had hardly seen him in years, and we kids didn't know him at all. But she was in his will. She got what was left in his checking account, which wasn't much, and the old furniture in his apartment, which was mostly particle board crap. The old rocking chair was good, and the ceramic canisters shaped like mushrooms were cool. Mum said they were really old, and she remembered them from when she was little. But the one thing he did have was a car parked in his parking slot where it had been gathering dust for the last 12 years since they'd taken his licence away. The car was vintage and not in a good way. Back in the 2020s, there was this rage for making new energy-efficient cars that looked sort of like the old classic gas guzzlers. People wanted Rumble and Roomy to go with their solar and alternative fuels. I guess my great-grandpa had been a surfer back in the day because what he chose was something that was supposed to look like a station wagon. The first time we went down to the parking garage and looked at it, Ben, my older brother, groaned and asked, What is that on the sides? It's supposed to look like wood or something? Or something, my mum said absently. She pushed the button on the key, but the battery for it was long dead. So she opened the car the old-fashioned way, putting the key in a hole in the door handle. I was fascinated and proud of my mum for knowing you could do that. The outside of the car was covered in fine dust, but inside it was immaculate. She sat in the seat for a little while with her hands on the wheels, acting like she could see out the windshield. She was smiling a little bit. Then she said, "'The smart thing to do is sell him.' If the interior is this good, I bet he kept the engine cherry too. She reached down and pulled a little handle and Ben and I jumped when the hood of the car popped up. 
Mum, I think you broke it, Ben said. Maybe we shouldn't touch anything until we have a mechanic look at it. Ben was 14 then, and for some reason, he now believed that if he didn't know something, Mum didn't know it either. She just snorted and got out of the car and went round to open the hood the rest of the way. My goodness, she said softly, you did take care of him, Pops. I didn't know what she was talking about, but I do remember that the inside of the engine compartment was spotless. She shut the hood, unplugged the car from the supplemental charger and retracted the coil. She had a licence and knew how to drive, because that was part of her job at the old people's home. I was still surprised when she slid in behind the wheel and put the key in a slot thing and turned it. The vehicle had an anti-theft box on the steering column. She hesitated and then put her forefinger on the sensor. Hello, Suzanne, the car said in a rich brown voice. How are you today? Just fine, she said quietly. Just fine. Ben was freaked. Mum noticed that and grinned. She patted the steering column. My grandpa's voice. A little customization he did on the systems. She tossed her head at the back seat. Ben opened the door and we both got in. There were shoulder strap seat belts. No airbags? Ben asked in disbelief. They're there. But when he was new, but cars had both. It's safe. I wouldn't put you in a car if I thought it wasn't safe. She closed her eyes for a minute and tightened up her mouth as if she had suddenly wanted to cry. Then she opened her eyes and shifted her grip on the wheel. Let's blast, she said loud and clear, and the engine started. It was a lot louder than any other car I'd ever heard. Mum had to raise her voice to talk over it. And when he was new, cars were electric and internal combustion, and much noisier than they are now. Ben was horrified. This car is running on gasoline? Right now? Mum shook her head. Sound effects. And loudest inside the car. My grandpa had a sense of humour. She stroked the car's dash. All those years and he never took me off the security system. How smart is this car? Ben demanded. Smart enough, she said. He can take himself to a fueling station, knows when his tyres are low on air, and can schedule his own oil change. He used to talk to the dealership. I wonder if it's even in business still. He's second-generation simulated intelligence. Sure fooled me most of the time. He has a lot of personality customization in his software. My grandfather put in a bunch of educational stuff, too. He can speak French. He used to drill me on my vocabulary on the way to school, and he knew all my favorite radio stations. She shook her head. Back then, people wanted their cars to be their friends. He sure was mine. That's whack, Ben said solemnly. No, it was great. I loved it. I loved him. Love you too, Suzanne, the car said. His voice was a rich baritone. You should sell this thing, Mum, Ben advised her wisely. Maybe I should, Mum said. But the way she said it, I knew that we had a car now. Ben had begun to think he was man of the house, so he tried to start an argument with Mum about selling this car and using the money and her inheritance money to buy a real car. She just looked at him and said, 
Seems to me it's my inheritance, not yours, and I'm keeping him. And so that was that. She opened a little panel on his dash and punched in our address. She moved a handle on the steering column and the car began to ease backwards. I held my breath, thinking we were going to hit something, but we didn't. She stopped the car, moved the handle again, and we slid forward, smooth as a slide, up and out of the garage and into the daylight. On the way home, she kept pushing buttons and chatting with the car. It didn't have instant net, but it had a screen that folded down from the ceiling. What good is that? You have to sit in the back to seat to see it, Ben complained. Mum reached under the seat and opened a drawer. Inside was a bunch of old-style DVDs in flat plastic cases. They're movies, she said, supposed to entertain the kids in the back seat. The screen is back there so the driver won't be distracted. She picked up the stack and began to sort through them. She had a wistful half-smile on her face. I remember all of these, she said quietly. Some were my favourites. So the driver's supposed to just sit up front by himself and be bored, Ben demanded. She set the movies down with a sigh and turned to him. The driver is supposed to drive. She turned back and put her hands on the wheel and looked out over the hood. When this fellow was built, cars were only allowed to go a short distance without a licensed driver in the driver's seat. Less than a mile, I think it was. The auto brains were really limited back then. Legally limited more than technically limited. People didn't really trust cars to drive themselves. They had an emergency services locators, of course, so they could take you to the hospital if you passed out and sensors to help you park. But when he was built, drivers still did most of the driving. Why do you keep calling the car he and him, Ben demanded. Old habit, my mum said. But she said it in a way that ended the conversation. We had a parking spot at our building that we'd never used before. The first time we pulled up in the car, every kid hanging around outside came to see what the noise was. They watched as the car plugged into charge. Our car was about twice as long as any other car in the lot. Look at the size of those solars, one boy whispered, and Ben's ears went red. Old piece of junk, said another knowingly. Surprised it still runs at all. Mum did the one thing that Ben hated most. I didn't much like it either. All the other mums in the building would have just ignored the wannabe gangsters hanging around the parking lots. Mum always looked straight at them and talked to them as if they were smart, even when they were so drugged out they could barely stand. He's old, but he runs like a clock. He'll probably outlast most of the Tupperware crates here. They still use a lot of steel when this guy was built. Mum set the alarm and the tattletale light began to circle the car. Was that stuff on the side supposed to be? Leno asked. He was smiling. Leno was always smiling, and I'd never seen him with eyes more than half open. He looked delighted to see the car, but I'd seen him look just as enthusiastically at a lamp post. It's wood. Well, pseudo-wood. My grandpa was so proud of it. It was one of the first nano products used on any car. It was the latest thing back then, guaranteed not to peel or fade or scratch, and to feel like wood grain. 
most minor dents it could repair. She sighed, smiled and shook her head, remembering something. Then, come on kids, dinner to cook and homework to do. Homework, one of the boys sneered, and two girls laughed low. We ignored her and followed it into the house. Ben was mad at her. How come you know so much about that car? I thought you didn't have anything to do with your grandpa. I thought he, like, disowned you when you were a kid or something. Mum gave him a look. She never talked much about her family. As far as I remembered, it had always been just her, Ben, and me. Someone must have been our father, but I'd never met him. And if Ben remembered him, he didn't say much. Mum firmed her mouth for a minute and then said brusquely, My grandpa and I really loved each other. I made some choices in my life that he didn't agree with. So he was really angry with me for a long time and I was angry with him. But we always knew we still loved one another. We just never got around to making it up in time to say it. What decisions, I asked. Getting knocked up with me, Ben said low. Either mum didn't hear him say it or she didn't want to discuss it. So, after that, we had a car. Not that we drove it much, but mum polished it with special wax, cleaned his solars and vacuumed out the inside and hung up old-fashioned pine tree scent thing from the mirror. Once we came home from school on the bus and found her asleep in the driver's seat, her hands on the wheel. She was smiling in her sleep. Every once in a while, on the weekend, she might take us for a ride in the station wagon. Ben always said he didn't want to go, but then went. She didn't upgrade the car, but she made it ours. She put us both on the car's security system and updated the old GPS settings with our home, schools, the hospital and the police station, so in an emergency either of us could get help. The car greeted us by name. Ben pretty much ignored its personality program, but I talked to it. I knew a lot of corny jokes and had a strange program called Road Trip Games about license plates and animal, vegetable or mineral. I tried out every seat in the car. I watched some of the old movies on the little screen, but they were really long and the people talked too much. My favourite seat was the one in the back that faced backwards. I liked watching the faces of the people as they came up behind our car. Lots of them looked surprised. Some of them smiled and waved, and some turned their heads to look at the car as they passed us. The only time I didn't like it was at night, when the headlights of the cars behind us would hit me right in the eyes. The car was a sometime thing, and mostly it didn't change anything about our life. Sometimes when it was pouring rain and we had to walk to the bus stop and then walk home again, Ben would grumble. Other parents sent their cars to pick up their kids from school. Ben whined about this a lot. Why can't the wagon pick us up from school when it's pouring rain? He demanded of her. Your grandfather was a drive-it-yourself guy, like me. I doubt he ever had the block removed. Then it's just a software thing? You could take it off? Don't get any ideas, Benny boy, Mum warned him. And for a while he didn't. But then he turned 15 and Mum decided to teach him to drive. Ben wasn't that interested at first. Most kids didn't bother with a personal licence anymore. As long as a car met the legal standards, anyone could get in it and go. 
I knew little kindergartners who were dropped off by their cars each day and then picked up again. Mum said it was stupid that it took three thousand pounds of car to transport a forty-pound kid to school, but lots of people did it. Ben and I both knew that Mum could have had the car's brain upgraded or unblocked or whatever, and we could have had wheels any time we wanted them, but she chose not to. She told Ben the only way he was going to get to use the car was if he knew how to physically drive it. Once he passed his test, she told him that we might even have it updated so that he could just kick back and tell the car where he wanted to go. So, that was the big attraction for Ben. I got to ride along on his driving lessons. At first, Mum took us way out of town in the evenings and made him practice in parking lots outside vacant strip malls. But Ben actually learned to drive pretty well. He said it wasn't that different from a lot of his video games. Then Mum reminded him that he couldn't kill himself or anyone else with a video game. She was so serious about it, and Ben got so cranky. It was a thing they went through for about a year, I think. Any conversation about the car always turned into an argument. He hated the dorky paint and wood on it. She said it was vintage and classic. He said he could get a cheaper car. She said that all the metal in the body made it safer for him to drive, and that he should be happy we had a car at all. Their conversations were always the same. I think Ben said, "I know, I know," more than a million times that year, and Mum was always saying, "Shut up and listen to what I'm saying." Ben was absolutely set on getting the car upgraded so he could ride around with his friends. Most of his friends' parents had said no way to them riding if Ben was actually driving the car, even after he got his license. He kept telling Mum how the car would be safer if it could drive itself, and how we could get better mileage because it would self-adjust routes to traffic, avoid traffic, or to take shortcuts. And that statistics showed that car brains actually reacted faster than human brains in dangerous situations. Maybe so, but they can only react one way, and human brains can think of a dozen ways to react in a tough situation. So the answer is still no, not yet, maybe never. Mum scored big points on him the next week when there were dozens of accidents on the one five that involved driverless cars. Mum didn't care that it was because of a virus that someone had uploaded to the traffic beam. No one knew who did it. Some people said it was an environmental group that wanted to discourage private cars. Other people thought it was just a new generation of hackers making their mark on the world. It wasn't the car's fault, Mum. Ben argued. The beacon gave them bad information. But if a human had been holding the steering wheel, none of those accidents would have happened, Mum said. And that was the end of it, for a couple of months. Then in June, Ben and Mum got into it big time. He came home from school one day and took the car without asking. He brought it home painted black, with a rippling hint of darker tiger stripes. I stood and stared at it when he pulled into the apartment building parking lot. Cool, huh? He asked me. The stripes move. The faster you drive, the faster the nanos ripple. Where'd you get the money to do it? I asked him, and when he said none of your business, I knew it was really going to blow up, and it did. 
but even worse than I'd expected. By the time Mum came home from work, the vintage nanos in the wood panelling were at war with the tiger stripe nanos. The car looked, as Mum put it, like a pile of calling crap. What were you thinking? And they were off with him saying that the black made the car look better and the new nanos would win over the old ones and the colour would even out. When it came out that he'd raided his college money for the paint job, she was furious. It was too good a deal to pass up. It was less than half of what it would cost in a standard paint shop. So that was how she found out he had done it in one of those car painting tents that had been popping up near malls and swap meets. They were mobile services that fixed dings in windshields or replaced them entirely. They could install seat covers and add flames or pinstripes. The shady ones could override parental controls for music or video or navigation systems, erase GPS tracking and alter mileage used. Or, in the one Ben had gone to, do an entire nano paint job in less than an hour. With the new nanos, they didn't even use sprayers anymore. They dumped the stuff on and the nanos spread out to cover any previously painted surfaces. The men operating the paint tent had promised Ben that their nanos were state-of-the-art and could subdue any previous nanos in the car's paint. Mum was so furious that she made us get in the car and we drove back to where Ben had had it done. By law, they should have looked at the lower registration before they nanoed it. Mum wanted Ben's money back and was hoping they had callback nanos that would remove the black. But no such luck. When we got to where the tent had been, there was nothing but a heap of empty nano jars and some frustrated paint crawling around on the ground tried to cover rumpled pop cans. My mum called the cops because it's illegal to abandon nanos and they said they'd sent out a containment team. She didn't wait for them. We just went home. When we got there, Ben jumped out of the car and stormed into the house. Mum got out more slowly and stood looking at our car with the saddest expression I'd ever seen on her face. I'm so sorry, old paint, she told the car. And that was how the car got his name. And also when I realised how much her grandpa's car had meant to her. Ben had done a lot worse thing than just paint a car without her permission. I thought that when he calmed down, I might try to explain that to him. Then I thought that maybe the best thing for me to do was to stay out of it. The paint on the car just got worse and worse. Those old nanos were tough. The wood panelling took to migrating around on the car's body, trying to escape the attacks of the new paint. It looked scabby, as if the car were rotting. Ben didn't want to be seen in the car anymore, but Mum was merciless. This was your decision and you are going to have to live with it just like the rest of us, she told him. And she would send him on the errands to get groceries or to return the library books so that he would have to drive old paint. A couple of months later, my mum stayed home with stomach flu. She woke up feeling better in the afternoon but went to the window to look out at the day. That was when she discovered old paint was gone. My brother and I were on the bus when we got her furious call. You probably think you are smart, Benny boy, but what you are in is big trouble, very big trouble. 
He was trying to figure out why she was so angry when the bus went crazy. Ben dropped his phone, bracing himself and me on the slippery seat. Mum told us later that the Teamsters' contract with the city had always insisted that every city-owned mass transit unit had to have a nominal driver. So when the bus started honking its horn and flashing its light and veering back and forth over three lanes, the old man in the driver's seat reached up and threw the manual override switch. He grabbed the wheel and wrestled us over to the curb and turned off the engine. The driver apologised to everyone and asked us all to sit tight until the maintenance people could come. He called in for a replacement bus, but everyone on the bus heard the dispatcher's hysterical response. Twelve bus breakdowns in the last ten minutes, three involving bad accidents, and there were no more replacement buses to send. In the background, someone shouted that an out-of-control ambulance had just rear-ended a bus. Dispatch put the driver on hold. We were only three blocks short of our stop, so we asked to get off and walk. Ben grabbed his phone off the floor, but Mum had hung up, so he didn't really want to find out just what she had discovered that made her so mad. Ben had a lot of secrets in those days, from rolling papers in his gym bag to a follow-up appointment at the STD clinic. Not that I was supposed to know about any of them. We'd gone half a block when we heard the bus start up. We looked back and saw it take off. I'd never known a city bus that could accelerate like that. We were staring after it, wondering what had happened when a V-dub cherub jumped the curb and nearly hit us. It high-centred for just a second, wheels spinning and smoking, and two kids jumped out of the back seat, screaming. A moment later, it reversed out into the street and raced off, still going backwards. The teenage girl who had jumped out was crying and holding on to her little brother. The car just went crazy! The car just went crazy! A man from a corner bar and grill opened the door and shouted, You kids, get inside, now! We all hesitated, but then he pointed up the street and yelled, OMG, now, kids! And we bolted in as the hot pizza delivery van came right down the sidewalk. It clipped the awning support as it went by and the green and white striped canvas came rippling down behind us as we jumped inside. The place was a sports bar and a couple of times we'd had pizza there with Mum when her favourite team was in the playoffs. Usually every screen in the place was on a different sports field, but that day they all showed the same rattled newsman. He was telling everyone to stay inside if they could, to avoid vehicles of all kinds and to stay tuned for updates to the mad vehicle crisis. Ben finally called Mum and told her where we were because the tavern owner refused to let us leave by ourselves. When Mum got there, she thanked him and then took us home by a route that went down narrow alleys and through people's backyards. Every few minutes we'd hear a car go roaring past on the streets or hear horns blaring or crashes in the distance. Not every vehicle in the city had gone wild, but a lot of them had, including old paint. Mum had been mad because she thought Ben had upgraded old paint's self-driving capability by removing the block on his software. She looked a bit sceptical when he denied it, but by late evening the newspeople had convinced her. The virus was called the... 7734 upside down and backwards by the hacker group that took credit for it. Because if you wrote 7734 on a piece of paper and looked at it upside down and backwards, it looked a little bit like the word hell. They said they did it to prove they could. No one knew how they spread it, but our neighbour said that Zombie Nanos delivered it right to the car's driving computers. 
He said that the nanos were planted in a lot of car stuff, from wiper fluid to coolant and even paint. So Ben said there was no proof he defected the car when he got it painted, but that was what Mum always believed. By evening, the internet news said the crisis would solve itself pretty fast. For a lot of cars it did. They wrecked themselves. Cops and vigilantes took out some of the obvious rogues, shooting out their tyres. It made the owners pretty angry and the insurance companies were arguing about whether they had to pay off. The government had people working on a nano-antivirus that they could spray on rogues, but nothing they tried seemed to work. Some people wanted all the auto-charging places shut down, but people with uninfected cars objected. Finally, they decided to leave the auto-charge stations open because some of the rogue cars got aggressive about recharging themselves when they encountered closed stations. Mum tried to explain it to me. Cars had different levels of smartness, and people could set priority levels on what they wanted the cars to do for themselves. A lot of people had set their recharge importance level high because they wanted the car kept charged to maximum capacity. Others had set their cars to always travel as fast as they were allowed and turn the courtesy level down or to low or even off. There was a pedestrian awareness level that was not supposed to be tampered with, but some people did it. Pizza delivery cars and ambulances were some of the most dangerous rogues. At first, the virus paralysed the nation. It didn't infect every car, but the ones that had it caused traffic accidents and made the streets dangerous. No one wanted to go out. Schools shifted to snow day internet mode. The stores got low on groceries and the only delivery trucks were vintage semis with no brains at all and old guys driving them. By the third week, the infection rate was down and most of the really dangerous rogues had been disabled. That left a lot of cars still running wild. Some seemed to follow their normal routines, but speeded up or took alternate routes. Kids were warned not to go into infected cars, even if it was the family van waiting outside the school at the usual time, because sometimes those cars behaved reliably and sometimes they abruptly went nuts. A new little business started up, with bounty hunters tracking down people's expensive vehicles by GPS and then capturing them and disabling them until the virus could be cured. But some owners couldn't afford that service or the car wasn't worth what the bounty hunters charged. So old paint was left running wild. At first, we'd see him in the neighbourhood at odd times. He always drove himself very safely and he just seemed to be randomly wandering. Twice we caught him in our parking spot recharging himself, but each time he took off before we could get near him, let alone open his doors. Mum said to leave him alone, and she'd worry about it when the government came up with an antivirus. Then we stopped seeing him at all. One night when Ben was really bummed about not having a car for some school dance that was coming up, he checked Old Paint's GPS. That crazy car went to California, he shouted half impressed by it. Let me see that, Mum said, and then she started laughing. I took him there one spring when I told Grandpa I was only going to Ocean Shores. I wiped all the data off his GPS before I came home. I guess the virus must have brought it back into his memory. You did things like that? You'd kill me if I did something like that. 
I was young, Mum said. She smiled in an odd way. Sometimes I think being a teenager is like a virus. You do things that go against every bit of programming your parents ever put into you. She made a huh noise as if she were pushing something away. She looked over at Ben. Becoming a parent is the antivirus. Cured me of all sorts of things. So how come you don't just let me be a teenager like you were? Ben demanded. Mum just looked at him. Because I learned the hard way just how dangerous that can be to a kid. Running wild is a great thing for the kids that survive it. She turned off the monitor then and told us both to go to bed. In the weeks that followed, Old Paint went all sorts of strange places. Once he went off to some place in the Olympic National Forest where Mum had once gone on a rave, and he spent two days crawling around in an old logging trail near Crystal Mountain. Mum looked worried when he went off on that jaunt, and the night she discovered that he had now headed for Lake Chillen, she was so relieved she laughed. In a way, it was really cool that Old Paint did all that travelling. Mum would look at his location at night and tell us stories about when she was a teenager and living with her grandpa and making him crazy. She'd tell us about those close calls and stupid ideas and how close she had come to getting killed or arrested. Ben and I both started to see her differently, like someone who really had been a kid once. She didn't cut us any more slack than she ever had, but we began to understand why. We kept expecting old paint to run out of charge, but he didn't. He'd go sedately through the auto-charge places, I guess, looking like some family's old car. Ben asked Mum why she didn't block him from using the credit charge, and she just shrugged. I think she enjoyed reliving all her wild adventures. And he wasn't that expensive. A lot of cars had backup solar systems, and Old Paint had a really extensive one. Sometimes he'd stay in one place for two or three or four days, and Mum figured he was just soaking up the rays before moving on. And if I cut him off, then he may never come home to us. She gave an odd smile, one that wasn't happy, and added, Tough love isn't all it's cracked up to be. Sometimes when you lock a door, the other person never knocks on it again. So, as the weeks passed, we watched Old Paint move up and down Old 99. Ben and I went back to walking. All the city buses and delivery vans had been set back to full manual, and all sorts of old guys were chortling about being suddenly employed again. My mum said it was a huge victory for the Teamsters, and some people insinuated they had backed the hackers. The government people came up with three different antiviruses, and everyone was required to install them in their vehicles. The trick, of course, was getting the Scrubber Nanos and antivirus program to the infected vehicles. Everyone with an infected vehicle was required to report it, and mum had filled out the forms. A package came in the mail with the scrubber nanos in a spray can and a booklet on how to disinfect the car and then install the antivirus. Mum set it on the kitchen windowsill and it gathered dust. By the end of summer, most of the infected vehicles were off the road. They'd either destroyed themselves or, in the case of the really aggressive ones, been hunted down and disabled. There were still incidents almost every day. Three fire trucks in San Francisco were scrambled for a fire alarm fire, and instead they went on a wild rampage through the city. 
someone deliberately infected 15 Harley-Davidsons parked outside a bar with a variant of the virus, and 10 of the Hells Angels who mounted them and rode away died a mile later. A fuel delivery business in Anchorage faced huge fines when it was determined that they had neglected to use the proper antivirus. The fines for the environmental clean-up were even bigger. In late September, during a heavy rainstorm, I spotted old paint near the school. He was idling at the curb, and I ran toward him, but Ben grabbed me by the shoulder. He's infected, you can't trust him, he warned me in a harsh whisper. He looked over his shoulder, fearful that someone else might have overheard. By then, they were disabling even non-aggressive vehicles because they thought they might be able to infect other vehicles. As we walked toward the bus stop, Old Paint slowly edged down the street after us. Why is he here? He never did auto pick up for us. It's in his programming. He knows what school we go to and what time we get out. Mum put it in just in case she wanted to use it some day. Probably just glitching. When we got on the bus, Old Paint revved his engine, honked twice and passed us. When Mum got home from work, we told her and she smiled. That night, really late, I heard her get out of bed and I followed her to the living room. We peeked out the rain-streaked window and Old Paint was charging himself at our parking slot. Doesn't look so bad for being on the road so long, Mum said. She smiled. I bet I'll find a car wash and oil change on my credit card bill this month. I went to the kitchen and came back with a scrubber and antivirus. Shall we try to catch him? I asked. She pursed her lips and shook her head. Not in the rain. Let him get used to coming in at night to charge. On a dry day, I'll go down and spray him. And we went back to bed. September became October. I saw old paint in the street sometimes, and I suspect he came and charged up at our place more than once. But the weather stayed wet, and that was Mum's excuse for not trying to catch him. Ben was playing football for his school and seemed so different it was like aliens had reprogrammed my brother. Most days I had to ride the bus alone. I noticed that old paint would show up at the school on really stormy days and shadow me until I was on the bus. Once he was at my bus stop and followed me home. I knew I wasn't supposed to get inside him, but no one had said I couldn't talk to him. So I edged toward him as he followed the sidewalk and ran my fingers along his fender. I miss you, old paint, I told him. The locks bit down, he revved his engine and leapt away from the curb. He tore off through the afternoon traffic with other cars honking at him. It really hurt my feelings. I didn't tell Mum or Ben. I was afraid she might report him as borderline aggressive and give his GPS code to the police. January brought really nasty weather. Snow fell, melted into black ice and more snow fell. For a solid week, the cycle repeated. The worst part was that all the buses were running on the snow routes that avoided hills, so our usual three-block walk to the bus stop became six blocks to a main street. Each day, Old Paint was outside our apartments, edging along behind us as we walked to the bus stop. Ben ignored him, except to cuss that he could be inside a warm car instead of wading through snow and ice. Our bus stop was right in front of a charging station. There was a line for the quick charge, and while we were waiting for the bus, a black van pulled up, blocking a car in. 
The lettering on the sign said Road Dog Recoveries. Bounty Hunters, Ben said. Cool. Watch this. They fanned out around the car they wanted. A man in a car at the end of the line shouted, Don't shoot those so close to the station! Because they had their special tyre-piercing guns out and were taking aim at the red beamer, they had blocked in. But that wasn't the car they should have been watching. Two cars back in line, a black sedan with big wheels, suddenly cranked its wheels and cut right through the median and the bushes and right at us. It hit one of the men as it did so and he went flying. The other men all fired at it and missed. The red car freaked out, backed into the car behind it to gain a bit of space and it shot over the curb into the median and high-centred. Ben grabbed me and jerked me to one side, but it wasn't quite enough. I hadn't even seen the black sedan coming toward us. It clipped me and the impact snatched me out of Ben's grip. I went flying and rolling out into the street. When I hit the ground, I slid on the black ice and I thought I was never going to stop. Ben was yelling, cars were honking and when I finally stopped, the whole world was spinning. But I was okay. I got up. Ben was running toward me. Then my arm started really hurting and I realised I couldn't move it. I screamed and Ben shouted, Run! Run, Sadie! Get out of there! The black sedan had slewed around and was coming back at me. Later I found out that it had belonged to a security service and had an attack mode if anyone tried to harm the VIP inside. It had interpreted the bounty hunters as assassins. No one could say why it came after me. But as it came at me and I turned to run... I saw something even scarier. Old paint was roaring at me, full speed in reverse. I was going to be crushed between the two cars. I screamed, the black sedan hit me, and I was airborne. But old paint's rear door was open to upwards, and as I flew toward him, he shifted into first, burned rubber, and faded away from me like a catcher backpedalling for a flyball. I landed in the rear-facing back seat as airbags blossomed. It wasn't exactly a soft landing, but his actions meant that it was the softest possible landing. I collapsed there as the hatch was closing, and then I fainted as his airbags puffed up all around me. I woke up on the way to the emergency room. I couldn't see anything because I was surrounded by airbags. I heard Ben shouting my name, and then he was pushing the bags back. He was in the middle seat, leaning over the back, trying to reach me. "'Who's driving?' I asked." but he only shouted, Are you okay? Are you okay? Old Paint ignored traffic signals and one-way signs all the way to the hospital. Horns blaring and recorded voice shouting, Emergency! Emergency! Out of the way! Please! Emergency! He beat out an ambulance and was opening the back hatch as he backed up to the emergency room loading dock. Ben jumped out, screaming for someone to help his sister. The airbags around me deflated and people in white lifted me out. I had one glimpse of old paint as he roared away from the ramp. His rear bumper was pushed in and his back window was crazed. What happened to old paint? I cried. They had me on a gurney and were rolling me in. Ben trotted beside me, his cell phone to his ear. Compared to that black sedan, nothing. He worked that car over until it couldn't even turn a wheel. Slammed into it over and over. I thought you were going to be creamed in there. Mum? Ben talked onto his phone. Mum, yeah, we're at Marybridge Children's Hospital. Sadie got hit by a car, but Old Paint saved her. Come fast, they want our insurance number and I don't know it. I wasn't hurt that bad. My arm was broken and I was bruised all over. They kept me six hours for observation, but my concussion was mild. 
Mum stayed by my bed. Two cops came to ask what happened. Ben said a crazy car had hit me. Mum said she had no idea what Good Samaritan had picked me up and gotten me to the hospital, but she thanked them. The policewoman said the other witnesses had said the car had behaved in an extraordinary manner to save me. Ben looked at Mum and said, Some old dude was driving it. After he busted up that black car, he opened the door and yelled at me to jump in. He said he drove in stock car races, demolition derbies, when he was a kid. Then he brought us here. He left because he didn't want to get in trouble. The cops asked him some more questions, but Ben just kept saying, I don't remember, or I didn't see. I was worried about my sister. After they finally left, my mum said very quietly, I hope the charging station didn't catch the plates on camera. Ben just looked at her. Yeah, me too, he said. But I couldn't let them go out and disable him after he'd saved Sadie's life. Mum took a deep breath. Ben, Sadie, we both know it's probably going to come down to that, eventually. He can't run wild forever. And we all know that old paint is just following the directions of his programming. He's not really alive. He seems that way because we think of him that way. But it's all just programming. Saving Sadie's life? Catching her in the back seat like that? Cushioning her with airbags while he pounded that sedan into scrap? Ben laughed and shook his head. You can't convince me of that, Mum. The hospital let me go home that evening. We all went to bed right away. But about midnight I heard my mum get up, so I did too. She was looking out through the blinds at our parking stall. Is he there? Is he okay? No, baby, he's not there. Go back to bed. Ben and I overslept the next morning and didn't go to school. Mum hadn't bothered waking us. We had a good six inches of snow outside and school was cancelled for the day. When we came out to the living room, Mum was sitting at the computer watching a dot on a map. It wasn't moving. There was a backpack at her feet and a heap of winter clothes beside her. You kids get your homework off, Moodle, she said. I'm going to be gone for a while. She sounded funny. No, Ben said, we're going with you. We hiked through the snow to a bus stop and took a bus to the city car rental lot and checked out a tiny car. Riding in it after riding in old paint was like crowding into a shower stall together. Mum sat in the single front seat and Ben and I had the back seat. There was barely room for us with our coats on. Mum plugged in the coordinates and the car demanded that she scan her credit card again. It had a prissy girl's voice. Macintosh Lake is outside of zones 1 through 12. Additional fees will apply, the car told her. She thumbed for them. The car didn't move. Hazardous conditions are reported. Cancellation recommended. You will not be charged if you terminate this transaction now. Mum sighed. Just go, she said. And we went. It wasn't too bad. The main roads had been ploughed and salted, and once we got on the 1-5, the ploughs and other traffic had cleared most of the mess down to almost pavement. It felt really odd not to have old paints bulk around me, and I leaned against Ben. We didn't talk much as the car hummed along. Ben had tossed a bunch of stuff in his backpack, including my pain medicine and a water bottle. I took a pill and slept most of the way. I woke up to Ben saying, 
but there's a chain across the access road. So we'll get out here, Mum said. I sat up. We were out in the country, and the only tracks on the snowy road behind us were ours. It was a very strange feeling. All I could see was wind-smooth white snow and snow-laden trees on either side of the narrow road. We had pulled off the road into a driveway and stopped. There were two big yellow posts in front of us, with a heavy chain hung between them. A hunter orange sign said, Closed. The road in front of us was mostly smooth snow, and it wound out of sight into the woods. Mum told the car to wait, and it obediently shut down. We struggled back into our coats. None of us had real snow boots. Mum grabbed her pack, and Ben brought his as we stepped out into the snow. The skies had cleared and it was cold. This snow wouldn't melt any time soon. Ben followed Mum and she followed the ghost tyre tracks that left the road and went around the access gate to the lake. Snow had almost filled them and the wind was polishing them away. I came last, stepping in their footprints. Mum pulled her coat tighter as we walked and said, There were some great raves out here when I was in high school, but in summer... What would you do to me if I went to a rave out in the woods, Ben asked. Mum just looked at him. We both knew he'd been to raves out in the woods. Ben shut up. Mum saw old paint before we did and she broke into a run. Old paint was shut down back under the trees. Snow was mounded over him. Only the funky paint job on his sides showed. Twigs and leaves had fallen on his snowy roof during the night. His windows were thick with frost. He looked to me like he'd been there for years. As we got closer, his engine ticked twice and then went silent. Mum halted and flung out her arms. Stay back, kids, she warned us. Then she went forward alone. She talked to him in a low voice as she walked slowly around the car. She kept shaking her head. Ben and I ignored what she'd said and walked slowly forward. Old paint was still. Both his front and back bumpers were pushed in and he had a long crease down his passenger side. One of his headlights was cracked. His rear licence plate hung by a single screw. He's dead, I said, and I felt my eyes starting to sting. Not quite, my mum said grimly. He doesn't have enough of a charge to move. His nanos have been trying to pop his dents out and fix his glass, but that will take time. She went around to the driver door and unlocked it with a key. She leaned in and popped the hood and then tossed the keys to Ben. Look in the back. There's a hatch in the floor. Open it. Get out the stuff in there. Looks like we're going to need Grandpa's emergency kit. She dropped her pack on the ground in the snow and then wrestled a charge in a box out of it. Ben and I were staring at her. Hurry up, she snapped. We walked to the back of the car Mum already had the cables out and she plugged old paint in. His horn tooted faintly. Easy, big fella, my brother said as he slid the key into the lock. He saw me looking at him and said, just shut up. We pushed the deflated airbags out of the way. We found the floor hatch and opened it. Look at all this stuff, my brother exclaimed. My mum walked back and looked in. She had a grim smile as she said, My grandpa was always trying to keep me safe. He tried to think of everything to protect me. Plan for the worst and hope for the best, he always said. She took a deep breath and then sighed it out. So, let's get to work. Ben and I 
more watched than worked. It was weird to watch her fix old paint. She was so calm. She pulled his dipstick, wiped it on her jeans, studied it, and then added something out of a can. Then she pulled another dipstick, checked it, and nodded. She checked wires and some she tightened. She replaced two fuses. She looked inside his radiator and then felt around under it. No leaks, she said. That's a miracle. She stepped back and shut the hood. Old paint woke up. His engine turned over and then quit. Turned over again, ran a bit rough, and then smoothed out. He sounded hoarse to me as he said, Right front tyre is flat. Do not attempt to move the vehicle. There's fix a flat in there, Ben said, and Mum said, Get it. He came back with it in his backpack. I stood next to him, stroking old paint's fender and saying, It's going to be okay, old paint. It's going to be okay. Neither one of them made fun of me. While I was standing there, his front bumper suddenly popped out into position. You can't really see Nano's working to take out a dent, but he already looked less battered than he had. Ben handed Mum the can, and she reinflated the tyre. Tyre pressure is corrected, Old Paint announced. Then Ben took the scrubber spray, an antivirus box, out of the pack and handed it to her without a word. Mum took it and stood up slowly. She walked slowly to the back of the car and I followed her. She put away the leftover emergency supplies. She gently shut the door. The glass nanos were at work on the rear window. It was almost clear again. She walked around the car and Ben and I followed her. She got to the driver's door, opened it and climbed in. Mum? Ben asked her anxiously and she waved her hand at him. I just want to check something, she said. She opened a little panel on his dash and a small screen lit up. She touched it lightly, scrolling down it. Then she stopped and leaned her forehead on the steering wheel for a minute. When she spoke, her voice was choked and muffled by her arms. My grandpa considered himself something of a hacker in an old-school way. He made some modifications to old paint. That's grandpa's voice you hear when old paint speaks. And you know how I told you some people remove the safety constraints from the car's programming, the do-not-harm-to-people, or bypass the speed constraints? Not my grandpa. She sat up and pointed at the screen. See all those red override indicators? You're not supposed to be able to do that. But Grandpa did. He gave old paint one ultimate command. Protect logged users of vehicle. Schliff flipped the little panel closed over the screen and spoke quietly. I should have known. I was a wild kid, drinking, doping. So he broke into the software and overrode everything to make Protect the Child the car's highest priority. Hmm. <clears throat> she made a husky noise in her throat. Got me out of a corner more times than I like to think about. I passed out more than once behind the wheel, but somehow I always got home safe. She dashed tears from her eyes and then looked at us with a crooked smile. Just programming, kids. That's all. Just his programming. Despite all his tough talk, it was just his programming to protect as best he could, no matter what. Ben was as puzzled as I was. The car or Grandpa? She sniffed again but didn't answer. She reopened the panel on his dash and accessed his GPS. 
She was talking softly. You remember that one spring day, my senior year? Arizona, and that boy named Mark? Sun, sun, and more sun. We hardly ever had to stop at a charging station. That's where you should go, old friend. And drive safely. Don't we always? he asked her. She laughed out loud. She got out and shut the door. He revved his engine a few times and then began to pull forward. We stepped back out of his way and he moved slowly past us, the deep snow squeaking under his tyres. Mum stepped forward, brushing snow, twigs and leaves off the solars on his roof. He stopped and let her clear them. Then, All done. Run free, she told him, and patted his rear-view mirror. When she stepped back, he revved his engine, tooted his horn twice, and peeled out in a shower of snow. We stood there and watched him go. Mum didn't move until we couldn't hear him any more. Then she pitched the packet of antivirus as far as she could into the woods. There are some things that just don't need curing, she said. We went back to the city rents car and climbed in. My sneakers were soaked, my feet were numb and my jeans were wet halfway to my knees. We ate some peanut butter sandwiches that Ben had packed. Mum gave me another pain pill and I slept all the way home. Three nights later I got out of bed and padded toward the living room in my pyjamas. I peeked around the corner. My mum's chair was rocked back as far as it would go and her toes were up on the edge of the desk. The bluish monitor light was the only light in the room. She was watching a dot moving on a map and smiling. She had headphones on and was nodding her head to music we could barely hear. Oldies. I jumped when Ben put his hand on my shoulder and gently pulled me back into the hallway. He shook his head at me and I nodded. We both went back to bed. I never saw old paint again. He stayed in Arizona, mostly charging off the sun and not moving around much once he was there. Once in a while, I'd get home from school and turn on the computer and check on him. He was just a red dot moving on thin lines in a faraway place, or, much more often, a black dot on an empty spot on the map. After a while, I stopped thinking about him. Ben did two years of community college and then got a potential scholarship to a college in Utah. It was hard to say goodbye to him, but by then I was in high school and had a life of my own. It was my turn to have spats with Mum. One April day I came home to find that Mum had left the computer running. There had been an email from Ben with an attachment and she was had left it as a screensaver. He'd gone to Arizona for spring break. This was as close as I could get to him, Ben had written. The scene had been shot under a bright blue sky with red cliffs in the distance. There was nothing there, only scrub brush and a dirt road. And in the distance, a station wagon moving steadily away from us, a long plume of dust hanging in the still air behind him. There you go, don't forget, copyright as always is Megan Lindholmes. Big thank you to Megan, Megan, thank you so much. And, Lulu, what can I say? Big hugs, big hugs there. You've got a fine strapping lad as well. Done a great job. Thank you so much, Lulu. So next up is our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Ames, me girl. 
Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history, and today I just want to celebrate. I think most of us in the science fiction community are aware of what organized fandom can accomplish. That and a lot of persistence and a lot of patience. It was a letter writing campaign that gave us the third. And final season of Star Trek: The Original Series in the '60s. It was the commitment of brown coats all over the world that provided the momentum for a little television series called Firefly to become a film called Serenity. Now, as we're drawing the year 2014 to a close, I think it's worth pointing out and celebrating. The fact that several long-term fandoms have just seen their patience rewarded. So I'd like to mention three television fandoms related to science fiction that have something to celebrate as 2015 comes into view. All of these are fandoms born of the 20th century. That now have good reason to be happy in the 21st century. Let's go in reverse chronological order. First of all, congratulations to fans of The Pretender. The Pretender was a U.S. television series that aired on NBC from 1996 to 2000, four seasons, followed by two made-for-television films that aired in 2001. It starred Michael T. Weiss as Jared, the genius and former child prodigy, Patrick Bocho as his mentor and keeper, Dr. Sidney Green, Andrea Parker as the mysterious Miss Parker, and John Grease as the long-suffering brute. The premise was that child prodigy Jared and others like him. Were abducted at a young age and raised in a sort of scientific think tank called the Center, which was set in the fictional town of Blue Cove, Delaware. He was told that his parents had died, and was assigned to a psychiatrist working for the Center, conducting experiments named Sydney. Sydney mentored the boy and coached him through. All sorts of simulations and experiments designed to use that intellect with which、uh, Jared was gifted for real life applications. Essentially, he was turned into character after character to role play and work out the best case scenario in each situation. Sidney grows increasingly uncomfortable with his role. He himself had been a twin who was experimented upon by the Nazis in a concentration camp during World War II, but his loyalty to Jared、uh, keeps him there at the center. Eventually, though, Jared discovers that some of the data gathered from his responses have been used for all sorts of nasty things, from illegal black ops to Literally planning out and carrying out the deaths of important figures around the world, he eventually escapes the center, and that's most of the story. Following the cat and mouse game that he plays as、uh, his mentor Sydney and the daughter of the leader of the center, Miss Parker, try to capture him. 
In most episodes, the A story is about Jared becoming another character, taking on a role and playing it uh, in the process of hiding in plain sight from the center. In this sense, the show was a bit like The Fugitive, in that the character takes on a new persona and does something new in a new place in each episode. But the more fascinating story was the B story about the center, what the center was doing, the kind of experiments it was continuing to perform on other people, um, Sydney's divided loyalties. He really wants to protect Jared, uh, and he really is deeply ambivalent about what he has done with his work in the center. And there's Miss Parker, who seems at first very much to be a creature of the center. But as the series goes on, we discover that she is being manipulated in many ways as well. At its least scary, the center seems to be the meeting place of mad scientists gone wrong. At worst, the center seems to be a kind of shadow government. I vividly remember visiting Toronto uh, for a convention at one point and going by the R.C. Harris filtration plant and getting that cold chill up my spine, realizing that uh, that building was, in fact, the complex that was used as the center in the show. Well, shakeups at NBC led to the cancellation of The Pretender, even though its ratings were quite high. But syndication gave it new life around the world, where it gained fans in many countries, and particularly France. Now, old and new fans of the series have good reason to celebrate. That reason is thepretenderlives.com. Through this site, the creators of The Pretender, Craig W. Van Sickle and Stephen Long Mitchell, have brought new life to The Pretender. At the end of 2013, the first novel of theirs, The Pretender Rebirth, was published, and it received both a critical and public success, and even soared to number one on Amazon France. 2014 has seen the publication of the second novel, The Pretender Saving Luke, and that's just the beginning of The Pretender's Return. The official website, thepretenderlives.com, has now launched 10 approved annex sites in the network, spanning over seven countries, translated into four languages. And the creators have been making the rounds of the podcast sphere, getting more attention uh, and bringing that attention back to the website to fuel what will be new ventures in 2015. They're taking a very collaborative approach to this revitalization of The Pretender and bringing in a community of some 10,000 fans that are interactive on the various social media and websites uh, tied to The Pretender. And I think fans have very good reason to look forward to 2015. Starship Sofa regulars will recall that in December of 2013, in episode number 316, I focused particularly on the television series Millennium and the current Back to Frank Black campaign, focused on bringing back that Seattle-based ex-FBI agent Frank Black from Chris Carter's series Millennium, which debuted in 1996 on Fox and was canceled in 1999, and starred Lance Henriksen as Frank Black. 
since I talked about the series and its genre roots so recently, I won't go back and explain it all. I will just say that we have good news as of October 2014. At New York Comic Con, IDW Publishing announced that there will be an upcoming five-part miniseries adaptation of Millennium as a comic series written by Joe Harris, uh, who also pens IDW's X-Files Season 10 series. And Chris Carter, the creator of both the X-Files and Millennium, will continue his role as executive producer. While this upcoming 2015 miniseries will be limited to only five issues, it is a test to see if there is a market for more original new storytelling in the Millennium Universe, and I hope that long-term fans will be voting with their dollars for more of Millennium. Now, television and genre fans probably know that there would have been no Millennium, or for that matter, X-Files, without a series that came first, that had tremendous influence on both of Chris Carter's works, and for that matter, on a great deal of television to come. And that is Mark Frost's and David Lynch's Twin Peaks, which ran on ABC 1990 to 1991, two seasons, and was followed by a cinematic film, 1992, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. Ugh, how to describe this show, this cult phenomenon? Well, the series begins with the murder of a small-town high school homecoming queen. And as the investigation into the murder progresses, well... The seedier, darker, surrealistic side of small-town America is revealed and laid bare. There's a supernatural thread always just underneath the surface, while the series also carries with it the attributes of horror films, of soap operas, of detective and crime storytelling. The cast was led by Kyle MacLachlan as FBI Special Agent Dale Cooper. I'm dating myself here, but I clearly remember in high school going to class and comparing notes with all of my friends as to what happened in the last episode and what our predictions were for what was coming next. The question, who killed Laura Palmer, was on everybody's lips. And over the years and over the decades, fans have kept faith. Starting in 1993, fans from all over the world have joined together in an annual festival held in North Bend, Washington, the Twin Peaks Festival, celebrating the show, inviting celebrity guests, taking bus tours of filming locations, enjoying film night, having contests and the like. That's a long time to keep the memory of the show alive. And now, fans of Twin Peaks, old and new, have good reason to celebrate. On October 6th, 2014, it was confirmed that the series will return for a nine-episode limited show to air in early 2016 on Showtime. In 2015, the episodes will be in production, all of them written by original creators David Lynch and Mark Frost, and Lynch will direct all of the episodes. And these episodes will pick up 
exactly 25 years after the original action in Twin Peaks, following the characters that we knew from Twin Peaks and seeing what's happened in the interim. Because this new series will be a continuation rather than a reboot, fans are eagerly listening for casting news, but it seems Safe to assume that Kyle McLaughlin is on board, as he tweeted, Better fire up that percolator and find my black suit, Twin Peaks, after the official announcement of the show's return. So, it's been 13 years for the Pretender crowd, 15 for the Millennium crowd, and almost 25 for the Twin Peaks crowd. And here's proof that it's never too late or too long to be a fan. I hope some of you are, like I am, excited and encouraged by these turns of events. I look forward to joining you soon for another look back into genre history. Thank you. Amy, I thank you. What a star. Thank you so much, Amy. So, next up, we have our very own Diane Severson with her Pori Planet showcasing the Dwarf Stars of War. Now, this is a short one, and it features the best Pori from this year's Dwarf Stars anthology. I hope you enjoy it. Diane! Another field trip to Poetry Planet is long overdue, but it's that time of year again. Hello, and welcome to Poetry Planet. I'm your guide, Diane Severson. As per usual at this time of year, I'll be presenting the winners in the Placing Works in the Dwarf Stars Award of 2014. For those of you with short memories or who are new to the planet of poetry, the Dwarf Stars Award is given to the best poem of 10 lines or less. You can find more info and the rules of nomination and voting at the SFPA's website, sfpoetry.com. And Deeper Than Did Ever Plummet Sound by Matt Joyner won the award. Matt is a writer and poet living near Birmingham, England. His work has appeared in Not One of Us, Strange Horizons, Stone Telling, and Goblin Fruit. With Sheer Lipkin, he co edits the brand new speculative poetry webzine Liminality, which I recently reviewed on Amazing Stories magazine. He loves ghosts and green men, foxes, and old books. And Deeper Than Did Ever Plummet Sound is a gorgeous poem which has its basis in Shakespeare's The Tempest. But it is so much more than that. And Deeper Than Did Ever Plummet Sound by Matt Joyner. For Caris Lewis. But some books float, Prospero, and not all words bleed black into the waves. Let these pages be tide turned now, polyp bound and clasped with kelp. Spells brine red until philosophy wears a carapace. Magi swim and squid inked runes are cast. All deeps invert. Tides at last divorce the moon, and gulls race risen ships upon a self willed swell to give the land one last embrace. In second place came The Loss by Mari Ness, who has often dreamed of having wings. Her fiction and poetry have appeared in numerous publications, including Strange Horizons, Tor.com, Clark's World, Daily Science Fiction, and Apex Magazine. She lives in central Florida. 
This poem was one of my favorites. This poem was one of my favorites that I read outside of the Dwarf Stars anthology last year, meaning that I read it before the anthology came out. So I'm especially pleased that it did so well. It is especially effective because of the poignant last line. The Loss by Mari Ness Later, what she missed was never the wings, the constant tending, the endless preening, the heart loss of each and every feather fall, but rather the silence of the open sky, the thunder of the raging storm, of how sometimes on the clearest nights she knew her wings had touched the stars. David Klink's Hourglass came in third place. The author has three collections of poetry, Eating Fruit Out of Season, Monster, and Crouching Yak, Hidden Emu. He edited an anthology of environmental poetry called A Verdant Green in 2010. His poem, A Sea Monster Tells His Story, won the 2013 Aurora Award for the Best Poem or Song. Here we're talking to an hourglass personified. Hourglass. Patience settles inside you. Your sand dreams of returning to the ocean to dance in that salty den of sharks and coelacanths. Glass is your horizon, your world where wood is both a ceiling and a floor. A hand takes you by the waist. If you're interested in getting a copy of the Dwarf Stars Anthology, I highly recommend it. It is full of wonderful, very short poetry and is a quick and easy read. You can find out how at sfpoetry.com. That's it for today, short and sweet. I'll be back soon for our next field trip to the Elgin Award Museum. I mean, showcase for 2014. See you then. This is Diane, signing out. Diane says there could be a longer one coming as well soon for the Elgin Awards showcase. There you go. Diane, thank you so much. Well, that is Starship Sofa's show. Wow, what a fantastic show, man. Do you know what I mean? What a show. Proud as punch. Just amazing. Thank you, everyone, that's kind of taken part in today's show. It's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. 
You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.